Previously on Heavy Metal Historian, we examined the influence of historic figures and events on the spirit of metal. We also looked at the origins and rise of subgenres such as progressive music and how it changed into progressive rock in the 1970s and beyond. Now, we return to our journey into prog, where we now shift from the original stepping stones established by artists like Yes, Genesis and Pink Floyd. We pursue the significant influence of Rush as the Canadian music giants establish a subgenre that would influence countless bands that would follow. From the emergence of Queensryche, to the development of Dream Theatre, into the ambiguity of Tool and beyond, we finally delve into the rise of progressive metal. Welcome to our 21st episode. I'm Greg Davies, your heavy metal historian. In our previous examinations of prog, we found that progressive music has most likely been with humanity since the dawn of music. For every popular song in society, there are surely other groups of performers who strove to push the boundaries of what was possible with music. It's almost part of the human psyche. In fact, there is a word for this. Intelligentsia, used for a variety of causes through culture and history, is an apt term here to use for progressive musicians. Generally speaking, intelligentsia is a term derived from Latin. It refers to social leaders involved in intensive mental thought and action to help push forward and shape elements of culture and politics. But the key word here for prog is culture. Formerly, intelligentsia was used to refer to the originators of political ideologies that became existing political models in use, whether they be based on the Athenian democracy of ancient Greece or the socialist ideals scripted by Karl Marx, The terminology is often applied to politics. As far as music is concerned, it is the intelligentsia that place intense effort into pushing the boundaries of music itself within the realm of improvisation or technicalities. But the intelligentsia of prog also refers to the search for what has not been heard or accomplished before. It is the crusade or the cause for new music. From the dawn of humanity and the culture of music, there has most likely been some form of musical intelligentsia pushing forth the next phase in sonic ideas, and to this day, we still have this present in the form of progressive rock. Taking up the ideals established by Pink Floyd, Genesis, and Yes, modern progressive rock artists continue pushing the envelope of possibilities. Artists like Big Big Train, Anathema, Spock's Beard, and the Mars Volta continue in pushing into the complexities and journeys of prog. And websites like Bandcamp have a burgeoning prog movement with countless new bands adding new songs daily for both streaming and download, such as from Cloudbreaker, Casaveda, and Earth Creeper. Prog rock continues growing, a subgenre that spawned from its origins is establishing far stronger ground than ever, and the original intelligentsia behind it was Rush. 
Responsible for bridging the gap between progressive and metal, Rush was the first band to establish the idea or feel of prog metal. By 1976, the release of their 2112 album had broken down doors. They opened up the ideology of progressive to metalheads, as well as bringing the sonic punch of metal to prog fans. However, by the end of the decade, Rush took a directional shift into more commercially pleasing ventures in their recordings, from the spirit of radio to Tom Sawyer. It seemed that they began the same stepping back of their prog rock ancestors who had paced back from their technical work into more mainstream prog light chart-topping material. It seemed that progressive metal would be over before it truly commenced. But that was far from the truth, because as the 1980s began dawning, several bands began forging a path based on the model inaugurated by Rush, a new model which would begin ensuring a solid and lengthy future for the new subgenre in development that would become known as progressive metal. Rush's model for all intents and purposes was, if you'll excuse the term, combo metal. It was a version of fusion where the band took the concepts and energy of progressive rock from bands like Pink Floyd and Yes and merged them with the solid rock explosiveness of early metal from the likes of Blue Cheer and Led Zeppelin. There is a name for this fusion merging style of combo metal and it is heterogeneity. This is where something is composed of two very different things, when mix creates something new, but the two individual things still remain identifiable. Heterogeneity is the Rush model. Take two styles, prog and metal, mix well, which invents something new, but to the point where you can still identify the individual prog and metal elements. That's what progressive metal is all about, and it's also what sets it at a distance from avant-garde experimental metal. While the terms progressive and avant-garde both tend to mean the ideas of pushing boundaries to find music ahead of its time, they are dissimilar. Progressive metal specifically follows the Rush model of heterogeneity, though with slight variations thereof through history, and it is a lot more regimented and structured. Prog often focuses on the creation of larger-scale concepts, sometimes in single songs, but more often than not in full-length concept albums. Experimentalism, on the other hand, in metal is much more free-form. It can certainly have its basis in progressive metal, but can noodle away freely and sometimes without structure and with odd instrumentation. This can be heard whether it's from some of the randomness of Buckethead or the steep explorations of Mike Patton in Phantoms. As Rush transitioned into more commercial territory for their careers, other bands began following in their original heterogeneous footsteps. It's at this point where many profiles or documentaries on prog metal make the mistake of looking at Queensryche as the next prog metal band. This couldn't be further from the truth. The next band to follow in Rush's footsteps was Sabotage in 1978. Started by brothers John and Chris Olivia in Florida under the name Avatar, the band focused on the similar combo of mixing progressive with metal, but in this case it was more of a blending of the stylings of Rush specifically with the second generation of metal bands from the 1970s. After changing their name to Sabotage in the mid-80s, the band released a string of full-length albums welcomed by metalheads. By 1987, they'd honed their mix of prog and metal just right, in a fashion that consolidated their own musical identity with the release of the album Hall of the Mountain King. (laughs) 
The next to follow in Russia's footsteps was King's X. Originating in Missouri in 1980 and formed by Doug Pinnock, King's X began merging the progressive metal styles of Rush and Sabotage and amalgamating it with the roots of garage rock. Much later, the group began incorporating elements of both blues-based styles and punk-based styles into their music. Developing into perhaps one of the most underrated of the prog metal bands from the decade, King's X would be hugely inspirational to the future grunge scene. Bands like Nirvana, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam would all name King's X as big influences, with Pearl Jam's Jeff Ament going as far to declare that King's X invented grunge. Whilst stylistically King's X may have been prototypes of grunge, in that genre's geographical birthplace of Seattle, Washington in 1982, we find Queensryche coming into the chronicles of progressive metal. Founding initially as a band wanting to merge elements of rock with metal, the original members of Queensryche had an eye ahead to a more progressive future in mind. Adopting the stylizations of the glam metal movement that was popular at the time, the group would finally combine this with prog in their breakthrough album, Operation Mindcrime. A concept album, Operation Mindcrime, was a major advance for Queensryche and a smash among metal fans. With the development of the recording, the band sought to emulate the model of the concept albums from their favourite bands of the past, from Rush's 2112 to Pink Floyd's The Wall and more. Like Rush before them, Queensryche opened up a new door for metal fans, providing them with a glance into the richness of prog, and at the same time, they were opening up another door for prog fans, giving them the solidarity and fierce bass of heavy metal. I've had enough and I want out! You can't walk away now. <laughs> Queensryche followed up with another concept album called Empire in 1990, which brought them considerable commercial success with the single Silent Lucidity. They continued forward with further concepts from the album Tribe to the album Here in the New Frontier, to the sequel of their breakthrough album with Operation Mindcrime 2. But in 2012, nasty times developed for the band. A dispute between band members resulted in lead singer Jeff Tate departing from the band, or being fired by the band, depending upon who you believe. The split evolved into a nasty legal feud with two parties, Jeff Tate versus the rest of Queensryche, claiming legal ownership over the band name. The judge assigned to the case 
allowed the market to decide by allowing both parties temporarily use the name. A new Queensrock lineup with Jeff Tate released an album called Frequency Unknown to varied reaction. However, the original Queensrock members lined up with new vocalist Todd Latore and released a self-titled album in 2013. Not only did Queensrock with Todd Latore overtake Tate's effort financially, but it also turned out to be one of the strongest Queensrock releases in years, securing them with the legal right to use the name. Also originating in 1982 was a speed metal group called Voivod coming out of Quebec. As the band evolved in their style, the new underground development of thrash began emerging from the Bay Area, and Voivod discovered strong similarities to what they were trying to accomplish. Taking on board the elements of thrash, Voivod merged them with the progressive rock they were inspired by, including elements of Pink Floyd. Lyrically, Voivod leant towards two areas. First, the factual side of life with strong socio-political commentary and second into the realm of science fiction. Sometimes the group would merge the two, creating dystopian futuristic storylines that had a solid base of social commentary that was relevant to their fans. In 1989, the band released their most successful album, Nothing Face, which featured their most successful single. It was Astronomy Domini, a cover of the classic Pink Floyd tune, in which Voivod paid tribute to their progressive roots. By the end of 1982, it's safe to say that the budding genre of progressive metal was finally growing stronger. With Russia's establishment of the model in the 1970s and the continuation of the genre by King's X, Sabotage and Queensryche, it supplied new groups like Watchtower from Texas, a basis to grow from. But it wasn't just in America. Across the Pacific, over in Japan, a new group of musicians called X was emerging at the end of 82. Formed by multi-instrumentalist Yoshiki, X Japan originated as purely a metal band, growing out of their country's love for groups like Deep Purple and Kiss. But by the end of the decade, X Japan had consolidated their style into some kind of J-metal, heavy metal stylizations with an orchestral and classical bass. Their album Blue Blood in 1989 was evidence of this, becoming their most successful release to that point. 
it was with Blue Blood that strengthened their position as the progressive metal band of Japan. Meanwhile, in Florida, a metal band was beginning that would originate a subgenre based off its own name. Death, directed by founder Chuck Schuldiner, would set the groundwork for the original rise of death metal with their early years after forming in 1983. Their early years were influenced by the new wave of British heavy metal, thrash, and the first wave of black metal. But by the time their debut release Scream Bloody Gore in 1987 came out, the band had customised a style which would become the benchmark for death metal. And once there, it wasn't enough. Schuldiner and the members of Death knew the band was capable of much more and, as a result, began merging their benchmark death metal sound with that of Progressive. By 1991, the band released the CD Human, with the music featuring far more complexities than they'd previously explored.
Meanwhile, another band would emerge in 1983 that, like Queensryche, would hold key sway over the development of progressive metal. Fate's Warning began in Hartford, Connecticut, on a comparable journey as Queensryche, where the band strived to merge the prog of Rush with metal. However, as opposed to the glam metal of early Queensryche, Fate's Warning sought to meld the more aggressive Judas Priest or Motorhead style of metal with that of prog. The result was a slightly heavier and a bit more aggressive exploration of prog metal, but no less intense and no less complex. While the band experienced ups and downs as far as mainstream success was concerned, they maintained a solid and devoted fan base. Their third album, Awaken the Guardian, was the most successful of their career in 1986. It is extensively regarded as the most creative period of the band by many fans and closes out with the classic song, Exodus. By 1984, prog metal was established and was circulating internationally and into other metal styles. Floridian death metalers Atheist followed in the footsteps of their forerunners, Death, culminating in their progressive death release, Unquestionable Presence. Meanwhile, over in West Germany, power metal band Blind Guardian would form, and as they evolved, they began blurring the lines between power metal and prog. But in 1985, one of the key bands from the prog metal subgenre arose, Originating out of the Berkeley School of Music, the young music students strove to create a heterogeneity of Rush and Metallica, or, in other words, progressive meets thrash, while keeping room for their own identity. But as soon as you go to Berkeley, you're immersed in an ocean of musicians, everybody with a gig bag strapped over their shoulder, but it's a jazz school, really. So we definitely noticed a divide, like you got the rockers and the jazzers, and the rockers were outnumbered, for sure. You know, I definitely stood, stood out like a sore thumb. And then once we formed Dream Theater with John Myung and John Petrucci, there we were, you know, in this, this practice room at Berkeley while everybody else was playing jazz standards, we were jamming metal and prog tunes. In simple terms, if Rush were Led Zeppelin meets Yes, 
Dream Theater, where Metallica meets Yes. Yeah, Metallica meets Yes. It's like Yes's instrumentation and types of songs, the different lengths and stories, but it's Metallica's metal, you know, sensibility, and fast beats, hard drumming, heavy guitar riffs, all that good stuff. Their history would span over 30 years, with over a dozen albums, including their own live bootleg series, of which one featured them playing Metallica's Master of Puppets in full live in concert. Merging the brutality of metal with the complexity of musical proficiency, the band's name has become synonymous with progressive metal. They are Dream Theater.
For the chronicles of progressive metal, Dream Theater was a turning point. While Rush could be pinpointed as the originators of the genre, it was Dream Theater that made it absolutely clear that prog metal was here for good. They showed its adaptability would do nothing more than enhance to push heavy metal further. Likewise, Cynic, founded in 1987 out of Chuck Schuldiner's death, would further consolidate the scene by merging progressive metal with jazz fusion. The release of their debut album, Focus, in 1993 was revolutionarily forward-thinking, initially shunned by confused metal fans, but later gathering a cult following. The following grew in numbers though, so by 2006, founders Paul Masvidal and Sean Reinhardt reformed the band and persist in releasing new music to this day. As Cynic's music would take almost 20 years to grab the attention of fans, the same would happen to Sweden's Meshuggah. Even though the band would rise to popularity among metal fans during the 2000s, the group was actually formed in 1987. Meshuggah was developed from the basis of advanced extremities mixing death metal with groove metal. Eventually fine-tuning their extreme metal approach, Meshuggah merged their hardened edge with that of progressive. The band created this unusual percussive approach to music that placed heavy emphasis on rhythm. They opted for deeper and lower tonality to heighten this rhythm basis of the band, as evidenced in songs like Future Breed Machine, New Millennium Cyanide Christ, and Stenger. But this stylation was none more so apparent than in their epic 21-minute song, I...
If we follow Rush's model of heterogeneity, then Porcupine Tree also fits into the genre of progressive metal. Formed in 1987, the group was clearly on the side of progressive rock in the beginning, but was later successfully merging it with that of progressive metal itself in the early 2000s. Back in Sweden, and also originating in 1997, was Tiamat, a metal band clearly entrenched in the styles of black metal and death metal. However, the group began evolving into more of a gothic style and began merging their symphonic black metal with a prog approach with the 1994 studio album Wild Honey. With Tiamat and Meshuga merging extreme metal with progressive, the bands had established their country, Sweden, as the originators of progressive death metal. For following in their footsteps would be The Edge of Sanity, also originating in death metal with fundamentals of black metal, Edge of Sanity began trying to destroy expectations of death metal with their early albums. By the release of their 1996 album Crimson, they had without a doubt stepped into merging death metal with progressive. Perhaps one of the most important artists to rise from the Swedish scene of progressive death metal was Opeth. Formed by Michael Ackerfeldt in 1990, the group had its stylistic origins in death metal, with stout influence from black metal. By 1996, Opeth began incorporating progressive jazz elements with their extreme metal origins, making for a highly unique meld within the confines of progressive metal. In 2001, the band collaborated with Stephen Wilson from Porcupine Tree on the epic release Blackwater Park. 
The album is widely seen as a point of maturation for Opeth, one in which consolidated them as one of the most popular progressive metal bands of all time. though, back in America, the music scene was shifting. Grunge was a year away from exploding into the mainstream, but the push to a more alternative vibe was already underway. Starting within the realm of funk metal, Faith No More became more experimental when they were joined by Mr. Bungle vocalist Mike Patton. The band helped push the movement of alternative metal at that point with the release of their 1989 album, The Real Thing. The band enjoyed major commercial success with the album thanks to songs like Falling to Pieces and Epic. But by the time they released their follow-up, Angel Dust, in 1992, it was clear that they were on a new path. The investigational nature of Mike Patton helped direct Faith No More into a more of an avant-garde path. They began bringing progressive elements into the realm of alternative metal. The band closed out the first part of their career with the albums King for a Day and Album of the Year, but they reunited in 2014. Faith No More are currently recording a new album, and have even now released a new single entitled Motherfucker. Force fit more than we eat in the wild. Grazed on a mash that could suffocate a child. Bloated, promoted in an ode to pomp and style. Moisten in the feed while we choke upon the bile. Corner in the market on the geese without the bones. Hushing out the public in a strike without a drone. The cage became collapsible, our sticks equipped with stones. Get the motherfucker on the phone, the phone. 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 In a stratagem of strain A smallpox-laden blanket Invisible with stains Inoculating bastards Bloody peck and pain 
temper has a hold, this temper has a hold We took the second sip from a cup we made of bones The first sip was a ruse, a trick so aptly thrown The truth is that our youth was a carpet laid in stones Get the motherfucker on the phone, the phone Travelling from funk metal into experimental metal gave Faith No More the distinctive position of bringing progressive into alternative. However, their follow-up albums were more commercially successful in Australia than anywhere else internationally, and their influence on progressive metal is often overlooked. That thunder is often stolen by Tool. Tool, of course, are enormously significant to the development and history of progressive metal. This is absolutely true. However, Critics and fans often point to them as being the first to merge prog with alternative music, and given the initial works by Faith No More, this is evidently untrue. Despite this, Tool's works have contributed greatly to the advancement of prog metal. Commencing in 1990, the band eventually came to the notice of fans with songs like Sober and Prison Sex from the album Undertow. The band's career exploded all over the world with the 1996 release of Anima, a concept album that consolidated Tool as perhaps the most abstract, obscure and vague of all the progressive metal groups. Their next concept was the 2001 release of the album Lateralis, initially welcomed by fans as an appropriate follow-up to that of Enema. But 
Astute fans later noted that it had major connections to the mathematical concept of the Fibonacci scale. Many believe there is an alternative track listing based on the math that apparently makes more sense when you listen to it. stage, it was clear that Tool was a band that took their time with their recording and producing of albums. In their current 25-year career, they have released only four studio albums, with a fifth possibly coming out in 2016. This puts their average release time at about one album every five or six years or so. Nevertheless, their most recent release in 2006, 10,000 Days, has some of the most personal content the band has ever released. It's a bit of a stark contrast to the ambiguousness of Enema and Lateralis. In 1991, another band would emerge that would, like a few before them, combine thrash metal foundations with that of prog. However, like Faith No More, their efforts would become very underrated by their contemporaries. Nevermore, originating from Seattle, had a challenging time getting the ball rolling for their career, having to complete with the grunge scene of their area at the time. Nevertheless, the band persevered and was united with guitar genius Jeff Loomis in 1995. Their debut album was welcomed by metalheads, but success eluded them due to the mainstream transitioning from grunge into new metal. Even with the constant uphill commercial battles, Nevermore gained an incredibly devoted fan following. The band's legacy continues with many of their album releases, such as Dreaming Neon Black and This Godless Endeavor.
As the 90s moved on, several bands continued to merge the sensibilities of progressive rock and or metal with that of another style. Like Porcupine Tree, Sweden's Pain of Salvation fused elements of classic prog rock with the modernity of progressive metal. Rhapsody of Fire continued in the footsteps of Blind Guardian, further blurring the edges between prog and power metal. But by 1993, something different happened. Zero Hour began their career identifying solely as progressive metal only. While their music was clearly prog meets metal, it was the first time a band claimed the name on its own. Meanwhile, in Norway, the second wave of black metal was about to creep through the country. Olver was a band that was a part of the scene, but they quickly evolved into being far more experimental, exploring techno, jazz, and other styles. They are possibly the first ever progressive black metal band in the history of prog, although Isan of the band Emperor has since pursued a more progressive direction also. Nevertheless, it is with Olver that we find a delicate balancing act between that of progressivism and experimentalism. same year, a young Canadian musician was discovered by Relativity Records after having played in a few local metal bands. He was invited to audition for the vocalist role in Steve Vai's project at the time, which would come to be titled as Sex and Religion. The young musician impressed Vai at the time, who invited him to also play guitar on the album and collaborate on writing material. Since the days of Sex and Religion, the two have continued a long musical relationship, sometimes guesting and often uncredited on each other's material. The young musician's name was Devin Townsend.
Following Townsend's tenure with Steve Vai, the musician returned to Canada where he began working on a project that was initially a solo effort called Strapping Young Lad. Playing nearly all the instruments by himself, Townsend released Heavy as a Really Heavy Thing in 1995. The debut album was a proof of concept in exploring how brutal and how heavy an extreme metal band could be. The idea, like in all progressive metal, was to push the boundaries. Townsend realised he needed more than a solo proof-of-concept work to accomplish this task. He joined forces with Gene Hoagland, Byron Stroud and Jed Simon to round out the Strapping Young Lad band. With the second album City, the band had turned their sound into brutal progressive metal. It was a groundbreaking release, followed up by a self-titled album, Alien and the New Black. Outside of Strapping Young Lad, though, Devin Townsend also enjoyed a strong following with his solo works. Away from the brutal prog of SYL, Devi set up his independent Heavy Devi records, releasing his own albums. Townsend's brand of prog metal was incredibly popular with metal fans around the world, though his early years never provided him with the commercial success he deserved. Throughout those early years, he released projects like Ocean Machine and Terrier, concepts in which he pushed his own limits. Townsend later formed the Devon Townsend Band in the mid-2000s, but disbanded them and Strapping Young Lad in 2007 to focus solely on the Devon Townsend Project. Now sober, he began musically soul-searching for meaning with a new musical identity under the project title. 
Consequently, Devon released a series of albums that saw him delve both deeply into and further away from metal simultaneously. The releases were highly praised by critics and fans alike, and have at long last provided Townsend with a bit of that commercial success after all these years. also began pushing progressive metal further as the 90s moved on. Muse hopped between elements of prog rock and prog metal throughout their career, having great success in both the UK and Australia. Symphony X and Arion merged orchestral elements with power metal and prog and further tightening the relationship between the two subgenres. But between 1995 and 1997, three groups would emerge that would enjoy great success in the 2000s and establish the pathway forward for the future of prog metal. 
Coheed and Cambria and Gojira would open up their own brands of progressive metal, while Dillinger Escape Plan would turn their insane noise into what would be jokingly referred to as math metal. All three of the groups began forging a path that would impact the future of progressive metal, but that is a story for another time. Because now it's time for a prehistoric mosh. At the commencement of their career, Rush started on an independent swing, forming their own label called Moon so that they could start recording their own material. Before their debut album, the band recorded their first ever single on the Moon label. It was a cover of the Buddy Holly song called Not Fade Away, backed with an original song called You Can't Fight It. All the way back in 1973, before Rush would establish themselves as the creators of progressive metal, here is that B-side from their first ever recording. This is You Can't Fight It by Rush. Let's take a listen. Now let's have a glance at this week in metal news. Ahead of their upcoming album, Slayer will be releasing a brand new song for Record Store Day. Entitled When the Stillness Comes, the song will serve as a preview of their 11th studio album and will be the second piece of music the band has released since the death of Jeff Hanneman. Limited edition copies of the song will be available from participating record stores on April 18. Cold Chamber are back, reformed and ready to release their new album called Rivals on May 18 this year. The new recording is the band's first album in over 13 years. The album cover artwork is available to preview online over at Blabbermouth. The Icelandic drama Metalhead will be available on demand beginning April 3. 
The movie is said to be incredibly intense and features a soundtrack of metal classics from the 1980s and 1990s. Metalhead was the winner of eight awards at the 2014 Icelandic Film Awards and has been critically acclaimed. Trailers to preview the movie are available online at YouTube and Vimeo. Def Leppard's new album release has been pushed back to later in the year, most likely to the fall of 2015. Joe Elliott reports that several sources have requested chances to release or distribute the record, which was unexpected and caused the band to re-evaluate how they wanted to release the album. Meanwhile, the band has announced a summer tour with Styx and Tesla. According to a video message from Adam Jones, it seems that Tool is currently in the studio, continuing work on their next album. Initial delays on the recording were caused by some legal matters involving the band since 2007, but things seem to be on the move for them now. The fifth album by Tool is rumoured to be available for release in 2016, and will mark 10 years since the release of their previous album, 10,000 Days, from 2006. As a part of their farewell roadshow, Motley Crue has announced the final tour in Australia and New Zealand. The crew, with good friend Alice Cooper sharing the tour with them, opened the show in Auckland on May 9, wrapping up in Perth, Western Australia, on May 23. Aussie fans after tickets can get them on March 4. Nightwish have released the official music video for the song Elan from the upcoming album Endless Forms Most Beautiful. The new album will be released on March 27, features 11 new songs, and will be released in a variety of formats, including vinyl. The new video can be seen at YouTube. Judas Priest's Rob Halford recently made remarks that he would love to make another Fight album one day. Fight, the band Halford formed in the 1990s after parting from Priest, was an intensely heavy effort from the metal vocalist, heavily inspired by the likes of Pantera and other groove metal works at the time, and showcasing great vocal dexterity from Rob himself. The band released two albums during the decade, War of Words and A Small Deadly Space, and Halford's public musings on a possible return to the band have raised hopes to his fans of the material. The black metalers known as Leviathan have completed a new album and they are streaming a new song for fans to preview. The song is called Within Thrall and is one of the tracks from the upcoming Scar Sighted album to be released on March 3. Within Thrall by Leviathan can be heard streaming online at SoundCloud. And finally, a museum in New Zealand has put on a t-shirt display called T-Shirts Unfolding, exploring the history of the garment and its importance in culture. One shirt on display in the exhibition is a Cradle of Filth t-shirt that has been the subject of controversy for decades. The front of the shirt has the Cradle of Filth logo with the image of a naked nun masturbating, and the back of the shirt features the tasteful slogan, Jesus is a cunt. The controversies surrounding the shirt include a slew of cases ranging from Australia to the UK where fans wearing it were either cited or arrested for offensive conduct, profanity or some other inane law, making it the perfect shirt to include in the exhibit to highlight the split it caused between freedom of expression and that of causing offence. Even now, the shirt sparks harsh reactions. At the exhibition, a woman attempted to spray paint the offensive shirt outraged at its design. The T-Shirts Unfolding Exhibition is currently on display at Canterbury Museum in Christchurch, New Zealand. Some of our sources this week come from the Metal News subreddit and links for the news can be found in the show notes over at heavymetal666.com. And if you come across any awesome metal news, please share it with us at reddit.com slash r slash metal news. 
On the next Heavy Metal Historian, we return to the emergence of hardcore punk, wherein we explore more bands and artists that contributed greatly to the scene and to its influence on metal. From the shock rock antics of Gigi Allen to the war declaration of fear and the anarcho-punk of Discharge to the zombie punk of The Cramps, we re-examine the past, present and future of the genre and bring you more Chronicles of Hardcore. Keep up with us by subscribing to the show at iTunes or Stitcher and follow us on Facebook or at Metal Podcast 666 on Twitter. Send us a message if there's a subject you'd like Heavy Metal Historian to look at or report on, or if you've got questions you would like to have answered. You can also hear me with Aaron Chavara on the Blendover podcast, bringing you the news that the news isn't covering over at Blendover.com. We'll see you on the next Heavy Metal Historian, Hales and Horns, and until next time... Dream Theater are often held in very high esteem among metalheads and prog fans, but one aspect many have missed is that the band members often take on side projects. One such project, put together by Mike Portnoy, John Petrucci, and Jordan Rudess, was called Liquid Tension Experiment. The concept was to take an instrumental basis of the Dream Theater experience and merge it with experimental jazz fusion. The band has released three albums over the years and has explored boundaries beyond which Dream Theater as a whole has never explored collectively. From the CD Liquid Tension Experiment 2, here's the song Acid Rain as our closing headbanger. (laughs) 